Okay, so we, uh, we have a very interesting question, which I just thought of once we, we planned this year. Uh, a light breakfast served right after the Megillah. Do you get the mitzvah of the Suda in any way whatsoever by having some rogalach and some coffee or whatever it is right after the Megillah? So there are really two questions at stake. One question is, do you need bread to fulfill the mitzvah of the Suda on Purim? That's question number one. Number two is, is this a mitzvah that's all day or is it just a meal? Right, where do we have a precedent for that? On Erev Yom Kippur, there's a mitzvah to eat all day. There were great uh, tzaddikim in Europe. They used to walk around with a sucking candy in their mouth the whole day because this way they would be yotze, so or they would get some sort of schar for the mitzvah of eating on Erev Yom Kippur if it's the whole day. So is that the same thing when it comes to Purim or not? These are both questions that have been debated for hundreds of years. Just to pick one one uh, one contemporary sefer that addresses some of these these uh, these shayls of Nevinsal. Rabbi Vigna Nevinsal, the chief rabbi of the old city of Yerushalayim, happens to be lenient on both of these counts. He says that you get the mitzvah suda with rogalach, maybe even with apples and oranges and things like that. You don't need bread. And number two, you, uh, you, you can get credit for the suda all day. So let's just talk for, for three minutes, minutes about the, some of the, the, uh, the details and ramifications of that. Why would I need bread or not need bread? So let's take Yantif, for example. Okay, when a person uh, eats a meal on Yantif, so they bench and they have to recite Yalaviyavo in the benching, right? So what if you forget Yalaviyavo? So the halacha is you have to repeat the benching. Now, why would I have to repeat benching or not? You know that there's different days where there's different rules. So the answer is anytime halacha requires you to have a meal and wash and bench, it should follow that if you forgot Yalaviyavo, then you should have to repeat the benching. Why? Because the mandate to eat mandates a benching to follow it, which in turn mandates a reference to the special nature of the day, such as Yalav Yavu, such as, you know, uh, acknowledging that it's Yantif. So if I forgot to mention the unique character of the day, essentially I defeated the whole purpose of what we started with, and therefore I don't have to eat again, but I do have to bench again. Practical nafkamina on on uh, Shabbos. If you forget Ritzay at any of the, the first two meals, either of the first two meals, you do repeat Shimon, uh, uh, benching. But if you forget at Shalashudis, you do not need to repeat benching. Why? Because many opinions hold that one does not have to wash. It's definitely preferable to wash. There are some who say you should wash for Shalashudis, but some say you don't have to wash for Shalashudis, which means for that third meal, there's no mandate to wash, no mandate to bench. And therefore, of course, there's no ma- mandate to mention Ritzay in the benching. So if you forgot Ritzay, okay, you better luck next time. You don't have to repeat it. So when it comes to Yantif, we find that one does need to repeat benching if they forgot Yalviyavo. The question is, what's the obligation to wash and have bread on Yantif? So when it comes to Shabbos, we know there's a mitzvah of Onik Shabbos. Onik Shabbos teaches me I have to eat three meals on Shabbos. On Yantif, there's no mitzvah of Onik. That's unique to Shabbos, right? No one ever had an Onik Yantif, right? We have, you have an Onik Shabbos. So mo- according to most opinions, you don't have to have Onik Yantif, right? We don't have to have Shalat Shudas. You don't have to have three meals on Yantif. So then what is the obligation to eat and wash and have a meal on Yantif? The Rosh explains this because of the mitzvah of Simcha. Simcha requires us to wash once at night, once during the day. Oneg requires three. Simcha, there's a mitzvah of Simcha's Yantif, one at night, one during the day. So based on that, many poskim say, let's talk about Purim. Purim, of course there's a mitzvah to be v'simcha. The, it says it's all in the Megillah. You have to be v'simcha. You may mishta v'simcha. So you could make a very strong argument to say that you should have to wash and bench on Purim to fulfill the mitzvahs of, uh, of Suda and Simcha. Otherwise, you don't get credit. 
But there's another side of the story. What happens if you forget Alanisim in your benching on Purim? The halach is you don't have to go back. That would point you in the direction of saying that there's no obligation to wash on Purim, because after all, if I wash and I bench and I forget Alanisim, I don't need to do it again. That indicates that the, the washing is not integral to the day and not necessary for the fulfillment of simchat. So these are the two, two sides of the story. Just important to, uh, to recognize, if you forget Alanisim in Shemona Esrei on Purim, you also don't need to go repeat your Shemona Esrei. Does that mean I don't have to uh, daven on Purim? Of course not. So it could be that there's some obligations, such as Alanisim, in benching on Purim, that it's not so closely tied to the obligation to, to, uh, to eat the meal. Could be that Chazal said, when it comes to Purim, it's a great idea to mention Alanisim, to, to say so when you're benching, but if you don't, you know, it, it's somewhat optional. And that's why you don't have to repeat the benching if you left that Alanisim. Okay, let's move on to one related point. One related point. Where else do we have a concept of eating, as we said before, all day? Yom Kippur, right? Erev Yom Kippur. That's reminiscent of the fact, as we mentioned last night, that there's some sort of Kabbalistic comparison between Purim and Yom Kippur, such that we call the 10th of Tishrei Yom Kippurim. It's a day that's almost as if it's Purim. Okay, and there are many explanations as to what the inherent connection is. We suggested one last night. I saw a beautiful explanation by Aaron Cutler, which is not esoteric. It's not Kabbalistic, very, very much down to earth. What is the reason why we eat on Erev Yom Kippur to begin with? We eat on Erev Yom Kippur, there's three or four uh, explanations. Some give a very simple shot that it's a preparation for the fast day, right? It, you know, the Torah wants to make sure that we have strength to eat on Yom Kippur. It's the only fast day in the Torah, so it's the only preparatory, you know, pre-fast day in the Torah is Erev Yom Kippur, where you get your strength to fast, okay? Some say based on that, if that's true, that if, if someone's sick let's, or, or someone, uh, a woman has, uh, has a baby, on, on uh, two days before Yom Kippur, she doesn't have to fast on Yom Kippur. So maybe she doesn't have to eat, right? She doesn't have to have a Suda on Erev Yom Kippur. She's not going to fast on Yom Kippur. Okay, that's a very practical approach. There's another approach. Another approach, which is, is, is uh, provided to us by Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah says something fascinating. He says, really, the, the, the meal you're eating on Erev Yom Kippur is essentially a celebration of Yom Kippur. But what can you do? You can't eat on Yom Kippur, so you have to push back the day before. What's, what's the big deal about? What are we celebrating on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is a very serious day of, you know, davening and, and so forth. So he says, think about it. True tshuva means you're sorry about what you did wrong, and you're really excited about the fact that you can wipe it away, right? If, it, if the Avera wasn't such a big deal to you, you wouldn't be that excited to, you know, to wipe it off of the, uh, off the charts. The fact that you celebrate Yom Kippur, celebrates the tshuva, celebrates my desire to actually be a better person and improve next year. So the fullest expression of that joy is when we can make a party uh, over it. But I can't do that on Yom Kippur. So we have a day, Hashem gave us a day on Erev Yom Kippur because in reality we need two days to fully experience all of Yom Kippur, all of what it's about. So we have the ninth and the 10th of Tishrei to have the physical and the spiritual components of that of that day, uh, and and nothing gets lost. So too, Purim has that exact same element. If we only had one day of Purim today, we'd be missing out on say 50% of what the holiday is really about. The holiday, in truth, is about tefillah and tshuva. Just 
throw out one example of, of where we see that. Rashi says in, in the Gemara, why do we lay in the Megill at night and during the daytime? Well, do it once, right? You don't shake the lulav at night and also during the daytime. So the answer is, he says, Zeichelanes, in remembering the miracle that they were crying out to Hashem at the daytime and during the nighttime. So Rashi tells us in there, a million sources that support this, why is, what is really the celebration of Purim? Not simply, you know, Jackie Mason, they tried to kill us, you know, we won, let's eat. It's tefillah. It's the fact that Hashem listens to our tefillahs. We don't, that's not really what we're celebrating on, on Pesach. There's, there, there are miracles. There's, there's divine providence. There's God showing mastery over nature. Purim is, we were in trouble, we davened, let's eat, okay? You know, that, we'll, we'll modify the Jackie Mason a little bit. We were in trouble, we davened, Hashem listens. And he responded. And Purim is, is, is the symbol for all generations that Kosh Baruch Hu pays attention to our prayers. And, uh, you know, that's why Tainus Esther, my cat spoke about this a little bit on, on Shabbos last week, Tainus Esther is not a fast day in the classic sense like the other ones that are tied to the destruction of the base of Mikdash. It's actually one and the same with the, the spirit of Purim and the theme of Purim. So it's really a 48-hour day. One, one unit, one 24-hour window today is the joy and the merriment, but in order that we don't lose another critical component about what the day is about, we have a previous day where a uh, tainus of Erev Purim, of, 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 of tainus Esther, where we focus more on the prayer, the fasting, the tshuva aspect, but in reality, it's all one big thing. And the same way that Yom Kippur would be, would be missing an important element of the big picture, so we have a two-day Yom Kippur, as it were. So to Purim, Rabbanu Cutler explains, is not lost on us because we're able to combine both the, the merriment, the celebration, and not lose the reenactment, as it were, of the celebration part that, we, uh, that, that, that finds its way into the tefillah the day before. One other dimension of the comparison between Yom Kippur and Purim, the Madonna Usher says, um, Yom Kippur is... We perceive it to be very much about Baina Adam Lumakom. We're in trouble all day, right? But we're also told in the Gemara that one cannot truly achieve atonement until they've also appeased their friend for anything you've done wrong, being Adam Lachavira. Some go so far as to say that you can't even fully wipe away your Averos between man and God, right? The full meaning of that, of that Gemara is. It's trying to tell us that until you've, you've made, made yourself whole with your friends, you don't really have a complete tshuva with Hashem. So Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippurim is like it almost measures up to Purim. What does it mean? Yom Kippur almost measures up to Purim? It says you can spend all day in shul doing tshuva and, and repairing your relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but there isn't so much going on in Adam L'Chavero. But Purim, you also have that, that mile. You also have that dimension of Bain Adam L'Chavero, because the mitzvahs of Purim include others as well. for sure, for sure. Even the Suda. The Suda, the Ramam says, you're supposed to invite other people. You're not supposed to, you know, just buy a pastrami sandwich and, you know, sit down and, and, and have, a, have a glass of wine by yourself. Because, let's face it, you only truly can celebrate when you have other people around with you. And as I mentioned the other night... The, uh, the uh, great, uh, great Bali Musa recommended that we give Shachmanas to people who we're not so friendly with. Give the ones, give plenty to, to people you're, you know, uh, you'd always uh, be nice to and give to, but look to, to give at least one package to someone who is not your best friend and, and try to improve those relationships as well. Okay, a few more minutes, just uh, an insight into the Megillah. 
when you read about the decree of Haman after you know the very graphic uh, to destroy and to decimate and to annihilate some say right how many times can you kill a person you know it's like give me beating a dead horse you kill someone they're dead right so some say means not just to destroy not just to kill them but to destroy the bodies as well Amalek, the predecessors of the Nazis, right? It, it wasn't enough for, for Hitler to just kill the Jews. He also had to cremate them. He wanted to make sure that there wasn't any remnant, any any memory whatsoever, right? He was going to have a he didn't have a, a museum, you know, to 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 recall the fact that there was once a nation. But but that was what Haman wanted to do also. Labe, not just to kill them, but also to make sure that that there was nothing left, no remnant of the Jews. But also adds one more point, which seems to be like superfluous. After all that, Ushlalam Lavos. And then we're going to plunder all of their possessions. You really need to say that. You know, look, look at the riots, you know. Just think about in recent, you know, for Crown Heights riots when I was a kid, you know. But like even during COVID, you know, and the, the defunding the police, you know, like downtowns like Chicago, right? You know, a peaceful demonstration, so to speak, turned into, you know, smashing windows and stealing TVs. You know, like anytime you have people who, are, who have no restraint, Right. The next thing that that is, it naturally is going to come is the loot. Right. So did, did Haman have to decree that you're going to loot? Right. It's obvious. Come on. Like what, what, yeah, That's what happened to the Nazis also. Right. They killed the Jews. But as soon as they would round up Jews or, or bring them to uh, to the camps, you know, they took their paintings and their artwork and their treasures. You know, it's, it's 70 something years later and we're still recovering all the treasures that were taken from, you know, in Germany. So why do you have to add that? Right. We mentioned that in Alanism also. Ushlolom Lavos. Rav Chaim said a technical answer. I want to add a little more than a technical answer. He gave a technical answer. He said that that uh, by by the Megillah recording that Haman made the ground rules. The ground rules were you kill someone, you get their stuff, right? All's fair and, you know, the war, you get, you get the, you know, the, the winner takes the spoils. Why is that so important? Because later in the Megillah, we're told that when the Jews fight back and kill all their enemies, they did not touch a single penny of their property. If we did not say up front that Haman permitted everyone to take the spoils of whomever you killed, it wouldn't be such a big deal if the Jews did not take the spoils. Once we say, no, they were entitled to that, and they still didn't take anything, okay, then we see the Jewish ethic at work. Let me share with you something else I saw this, this time for the first, first time. Very, very poshut, but, but, but helps you appreciate what's going on in the Megillah. Number one, 127 provinces. There were a lot of Jews who were living amongst amongst their enemies, for sure. But there must have been a few Jews, probably many Jews, many countries, many communities, like like in America, where we have reasonable, you know, relations with the people around us, right? I'm sure there are a lot of Amalekim, and a lot of people wanted to, uh, to to jump on the bandwagon with Haman, but not everyone did, you know? Who is this Haman guy? You know, we've been living for all these years. These Jews are very nice. They lend us money, you know? Once Haman upped the ante and added the incentive... Right? Think about the Poles and the Lithuanians, you know, like that's when their true colors came out once they, you know, they had the opportunity to do so, right? Haman said, you kill the Jews, cha-ching, cha-ching, as they say, okay? You know, once, it's, once there's that incentive, once there's the, you know, the, the, the dollar signs in their eyes, so then everyone who used to be their friends, forget about it. Haman needed to get more support. He needed to rally his troops. So all he has to say is, the money's yours, forget about it. Right. Step one. Step two. It's remarkable that Haman. Right. We don't always think so carefully about the the timeline of the Megillah. The Megillah. The Megillah starts, so to speak, in Adar. 
right? Well, I shouldn't say the the the, the plot of Haman starts start, starts actually in Nisan. That's where he rolls out the plot, but it's anticipating eleven months later, the month of Adar. That's where they're actually going to kill the Jews, right? But nevertheless, you see Haman. They're rushing. They're sending out the messengers. They had these special, you know, emissaries who could get all around the world very, very quickly. You think about it. Marco Polo was around, was fourteen years, seven years back and forth, right? These people they got all over the world in, in a matter of weeks. What was his rush, right? He had eleven months to get the word out. What, what was rush? So, so from his perspective, this is very interesting. Chaim Kanetsky said. The, the the whole the whole discussion of uh, you know the the party that Haman was invited to with Achashverosh and Esther, all of that was on Pesach. The Seder, the Pesach Seder, they didn't eat the Pesach Seder that year because they were all fasting. You know why Purim, uh, You know why Haman rushed to get the word out because he wanted to spoil their Pesach. He wanted the Jews around the world to have this cloud hanging over their head at the time of freedom of liberation of remembering how Hashem saves us that they'd be sitting at the Pesach Seder unable to eat their matzah because they had no appetite. Right? There, there was, throughout history, our enemies were not only killing us, there was a psychological warfare as well. And Haman, just like horrifically, he inspired, the Medrash tells us, listen to this, if a person would go out, just like to the market, to buy some meat or to buy some vegetables, this is the words of the Medrash, a Persian would like grab, like corner him in the in the alleyway, chunko, you know, put his put his hand around his neck and say, tomorrow I'm going to kill you, Jew. I'm going to take all your money. Right? It was, it, was, it was terrible. It was horrific. It, it was it was bullying. Like, but we've seen this in history. Haman got the the ball rolling. Not only did he he put them in that uh, you know you know again that that the psychological situation, but he, he he made it he made it okay and acceptable for everyone around the world to to, to intimidate the Jews. The stipler says. Very, very simply, because that reign of terror began, because that intimidation began, that was actually the biggest chesed. As horrific as that is, that was the biggest chesed. Why? Because think about what's going to happen. Even if, you know, the Jews are going to regain some, some edge and Ahasuerus is going to allow them to fight back, as was ultimately permitted, as was ultimately, you know, that's how it played out. But they're going to they're try to attack all the people who wanted to kill the Jews. They were given permission to attack all the enemies, anyone who wanted to kill the Jews. And what would the response be? Not me. Who, I, I didn't do anything. How do you know that I'm a, I'm a Jew hater? How do you know that I'm an anti-Semite? Okay, he's from Amalek. He's a friend of Ahman. But I'm just a, a nice, uh, you know, Ethiopian. Kush, you know. And the Jew didn't do anything. Don't do anything to me. By unleashing that terror, it gave 11 months for the Jews to identify who their enemies were. And as a result, they killed 75,000 enemies who had already shown their true colors. It was the greatest chesed. It was the greatest chesed. Hashem said, I, I, know, I know you're going to have to deal with it for 11 months, but it's actually setting you up for success to fight back and punish all those who are after you. This is just one small piece. As we know, every time you learn the Megillah, every time you learn the, the details of the Megillah, there's so many new dimensions. You never realize how Hashem had everything planned out from before. I want to close three minutes, three minutes with the following. The last... The last parak of the Megillah has three psukim. Very, very strange, right? Ten prakim, the last three psukim comprises an entire parak. And there's really not much going on in that parak. The last pasuk is, of course, the one we say out loud, the victory, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mordechai is at the top. Okay, but the other two psukim seem to be, you know, incidental. Achashverosh raised the taxes again. Okay, who cares about that? Right? Why is that so important? Yaakov Galinsky, who he passed away a few years ago, he's, he's a modern-day magad. He says something very interesting. Look at the last mention of Achashverosh in the Megillah. It's spelled without two vows. It's Achashrosh. 
Okay, every other time in the Megillah, it's Achashverosh, as you expect it to be spelled. There, in the last Pasuk, second to last Pasuk, there's no, there are no votes. At the beginning of the Megillah, when Esther is queened, okay, crowned to become the queen, immediately Achashverosh lowers all the taxes in every country. Why? The answer is because Esther was mysterious. He didn't know where she came from. Had she been, you know, from India, he would have lowered the taxes on India because that would be a way to show his loyalty and his love for the queen. But he couldn't figure out where she was from. So he said, you know what? I want to make her happy. I'm going to lower all the taxes. Okay. Fast forward nine prokem later or so. Now we're at the end of the Megillah. She reveals herself. She's Jewish. Achishverosh once again comes back and says, all right. Might as well raise all the taxes. You know, the Jews are all over the place. They're in every country, right? No reason in having uh, lower taxes. Let's bring them all back as they were before. Achishverosh goes right back to who he was at the very beginning of the Megillah. Explains Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, there are no vavs. What is vav? Vav is the letter, the vav hachibor, of connection, right? If I want to show any association, this and that, right? Achad. Ushtayim, right? It's always the Vav. The Vav is what connects. The Vav is the Chibor. It's the connection from one to the next. Achashverosh missed all of the connections. Everything that we see, the depth of the Megillah, how Hashem planned everything out from the beginning to, to play out that divine providence by the end of the day, how he was really showing his love for the Jews from the start by showing how little things that, that seem inconsequential at the beginning of the Megillah demonstrate that God was pulling the strings behind the scenes the whole time. Achishverosh was blind to it all. He went right back to who he was earlier with no chibur, no connections, no connecting the dots to see the beauty of the Purim story that we know is what the whole holiday is really about. Our job is to move on from every event in life, every challenge, and see those connections and look for how Hashem has behind the scenes everything running smoothly according to his plan and to embrace that, to love that, and to celebrate a day like Purim, where we, we see that that's really what all history is about. Chag yeah. I hope everybody on, uh, on the Zoom can, can stop by at some point, or maybe we'll stop by you. We'd love to see you and share Shachmanis with you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Chag Sameach, and uh, all the best. Sure,